So there was a priest, a rabbi, and a minister, and they used to get together and gamble. They used to play cards. And uh, it was illegal to gamble in that town. So they were playing cards one night, and the police chief broke in, and he caught them all, red-handed, sitting around the table with the cards. And the police chief said, first, he asked the priest, he said, Father O'Leary, are you gambling? The priest looks heavenward, and he whispers, Oh God, just this once, I'm going to say one little white lie, just one little white lie. And he looks at the police chief, and he says, No, I am not gambling. Okay, so the next one is the, uh, the pastor. The police chief says to the pastor, he says, uh, he says, Pastor Smith, are you gambling? He says, looks up at heaven, he whispers a little prayer and says, Oh God, just one time, one little white lie. And he looks at the police chief and says, No, no, I was not gambling. Police chief looks at the uh, rabbi and says, Rabbi Goldberg, were you gambling? Rabbi says, With whom? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's talk about a little white lie. Little white lie. It says in this week's Parsha Parsha's Chukas that Aharon passed away. Aharon the Kain Gadol, Mesh's brother. And afterwards it says, Ve'yiru kolho Edo ki gova Aharon. The congregation saw that Aharon had passed, had expired. Ve'yivku es Aharon shleishim yeim koil base Yisrael. And the entire house of Israel mourned, cried for Aharain for 30 days. And uh, Rashi mentions, Kol Beis Yisrael, the whole house of Israel, Ho Anoshim Vahanoshim, the men and the women. Why? Lefi Shohoya Aaron of Shalom, because Aaron was a pursuer of peace. Umatel Ahava Ben Bali Meriva. He used to make peace between people who were fighting, uvein ish ishtai, and between man and wife. This is a very truncated version of the Aves de Rebbe Nassen, where it explains more fully the method that Aharon used in order to make peace. So there in the Aves de Rebbe Nassen, he explains like this. When Aharain would find out that two people were fighting, be they friends or neighbors or spouses or business partners or whatever, he would go to one party on their own and he would say, I hear that you're in a fight with so-and-so. Well, that, that, that's a real shame because your fill-in-the-blank spouse, neighbor, business partner, friend, whatever, really wants to apologize, really wants to make peace, and he doesn't have the guts. But he really, he wants, he knows, he knows he's wrong, and he wants to make peace. So, you know, be the big man and go over and just allow him to make peace with you. And then he would go to the other party and he would say the exact same story. And then they would see each other, both one, both ones with their ego sort of disarmed, both ones assuming that they didn't have to be the one to 
admit they were wrong because the other one had already made the overture for peace, so to speak. And then they would just see each other and start getting along. And that's, that was how Ahrein made peace. So basically, um, if you look at the way that the Medrash describes it, you would say the reason that Ahrein was successful in making so much peace was because he knew how to lie. He knew how to lie. Little white lie, little white lie, but he was lying. And uh, I guess you could say, yeah, for the purposes of peace, right? That for the purposes of peace, you can change the truth a little bit. It's called diplomacy. It's called tact. But we're going to look at this from a deeper level, uh, a more spiritual level. And we're going to ask ourselves, really, that's what was so exemplary, so noble about Aharain, that he knew how to spin the truth. He was a spin doctor. No, there's got to be something deeper, especially because Chazal, our sages, tell us to be like Aharain. Not only do they tell us the effect that Aharain had on the people of his generation, but uh, it says in Pirkei Ovis, in the first chapter of Pirkei Ovis, Hillel says, you should be like Aaron, be of the dis- disciples of Aaron, and, and pursue peace and make peace, love peace. So it can't just be that the whole teaching here is learn how to play with the truth in order to make peace. It's got to be something deeper than that. So what is it? And if we'll understand on a deeper level what Aaron was doing, we'll also understand why his passing was particularly difficult for the Jewish people and why everyone mourned him. So those two things, really. What was Aaron really doing, deeper than just playing with the truth? And why was that thing he was doing something that made him, made his loss particularly difficult for the Jewish people. You follow? Okay. So, uh, I'll tell you a story that I heard directly from the person to whom it happened. There's a Choshevayid named Tzvi Hersh Weinreb. It happens to be, he's also a psychologist which is the worst thing, basically. He's a Talmud Chochem, he's a psychologist, he's a respected guy. So basically what happens is that everybody comes to him for advice, but who's he supposed to go to? And that is what the story is about. The story is that when he was a very young man, he, he, he had a crisis where the whole world was relying on him, and he felt he didn't have anyone to go to when, when he had problems. So to, to set the scene, he lived in Crown Heights. I'm not sure how long he lived in Crown Heights. I know it wasn't very long. Um, his wife was also a very wonderful person. She's from the Mujitzer Taubes. If people ask me if I'm from the Mujitzer Taubes, I say, listen to me sing and the, you'll know within the first note. No. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> 
the Majitzer uh, base Madrush was in Crown Heights. So when they first got married, they lived in Crown Heights. And I think he told me he went to one of the Rebbe's Fabrengans in 770 once. Maybe twice, but it was, it was once or twice. And that was his extent of his dealings with, with Lubavitch. This was in the late 60s. Anyways, my point is that he had been in a public setting with the Rebbe, and he knew what the Rebbe's voice sounded like because he'd heard the Rebbe speak publicly. But that was it. There was nothing more than that. Um, then he moved to Maryland, to Silver Springs, Maryland. And this is where the story took place. He had this crisis where he was, he was giving shiurim for the Balabatim, and he was like, you know, a, a rov figure. He was also practicing professionally, very looked up to in a, in a professional capacity. And, and, and he had questions about, about being a husband, being a father, questions about Yiddishkeit. You know, people do have questions, right? But he's the one who's supposed to be the answer guy, so who's he supposed to go to when he has the questions? And he said he felt very isolated. And, and he used the word, he says, I, I became depressed. And if he used the word depressed, I mean, he, he, I'm sure he wasn't throwing the word around loosely. So he says, uh, I spoke to the smartest guy I knew, uh, and I asked him, what should I do? So it's interesting. He didn't ask this guy for advice, but he asked him how to get advice. <laughs> he spoke to Naftali Berg, Oliver Shalom, who was a genius. He was a nuclear physicist. I think he did work for the government. And... Uh, genius scientist. So Berg told him, um, go to the Rebbe, you got to go to the Lubavitch Rebbe. So Rabbi Weinreb, I guess he didn't know any better. He didn't know protocol. This was in the 60s. He could have gotten a Yechidis. He could have scheduled an audience, however long it would have taken, a year, two years, whatever. But he eventually could have had a Yechidis. But he went <laughs> straight to the top. Uh, he got the number for 770, he just picked up the phone and he called. And the Rebbe's chief secretary, he realized after the fact, it was the Rebbe's chief secretary, Rabbi Chadakov, answered the phone and says, Verretta, uh, who's speaking? Now, Rabbi Weinreb, the whole point of his call was he wanted somebody he, he could confide in and ask these questions that he didn't really feel I mean, obviously, at this point, years later, he's comfortable telling the story. But at the time, there was, like, a lot of shame and, like, how could I have these questions? I'm, I'm not supposed to even have these, these thoughts. So he, was, he didn't want to say his name. So when Rabbi Chadukov said, Veretto, who's speaking here? He just said, Ayid von Maryland. He said, a Jew from Maryland. That's it. Okay, fine, that's, that's the only way he identified himself. So I want to ask some questions. Okay, new Freg, can Freg ask you questions? So he asked a bunch of questions, and he said it was very weird because every time he asks something, Rabbi Chadukov would repeat word for word out loud what he was asking. Like, it's a weird way to have a conversation. And he wouldn't answer anything. He would just keep saying, he'd just repeat out loud what Rabbi Weinreb had just said. So at the end of the whole thing, he hears another voice in the background, and he realizes this is the Rebbe's voice, and he realizes Chadakov answered the phone in the Rebbe's office, and the reason Chadakov is repeating word for word everything that Wine Rebbe is saying is he's acting like a human speakerphone, basically. <laughs> this, is, this is the 60s, before a speakerphone. So he's just repeating out loud so the Rebbe can hear, and then the Rebbe can give an answer. So he hears in the background, 
the Rebbe's answer. And remember, when Rabbi Halakov asked who's calling, he said, Ayid von Maraland. So he hears in the background the Rebbe say to Halakov, Hiei sezer ruft von Maraland. Since he's calling from Maryland, Zogim, tell him, Asedor in Maryland, Ayid midvemin erzoreden, there's a Jew in Maryland he should speak to, Un heist er Weinreb, his name is Weinreb. I mean, you know, you know, this is like, just pause this for a second, but you know this is like an old joke. There's an old joke about a guy who's sitting on a psychiatrist's couch, uh, and he says, uh, Doctor, thank you for taking me for this, for this meeting. Uh, I'm depressed. And the doctor's like, listen, I could take your money, but I want to do you a favor. Don't come to me. If you're depressed, you're, you're in luck. I just read this morning in the paper, the circus is coming to town, and this circus has a famous clown called Pagliacci. And everyone who sees Pagliacci is just tickled pink with mirth and glee. Just go see Pagliacci. And the guy lying on the psychiatrist's couch says, Doctor, no, I can't do it. Yes, you can. Just go. Do yourself a favor. Go see Pagliacci. He says, Doctor, I can't do it. He's like, yes, you can. Go to the circus and watch the clown. Watch Pagliacci and you'll be so delighted. You'll... Doctor, I can't do it. He says, why not? Why can't you go see Pagliacci? He says, doctor, I'm Pagliacci. <laughs> right? It's an old joke, but this is real. He said, there's a Jew in Maryland he should speak to. He should speak to Weinreb. So Weinreb says to Chalukov, he says, ich bin der Weinreb, but I'm, the, I'm that Weinreb. So he hears Rabbi Chalukov say, Wait, wait a second. Just wait a second. And he hears sort of like this very flustered tone from Chanukov. He's telling the Rebbe, He says he's the guy. And he hears the Rebbe very calmly, very calmly say, if that's the case, it should be made. It should be made known to him that at times you have to speak to yourself. That's it. That's the story. Now, what is this a story about? If you say it's Ruach Hakodesh, how did the Rebbe know, or what did the Rebbe know? I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, those kinds of stories don't excite me because. What am I supposed to, how can I apply that? You know, if it is about some type of clairvoyance or something, I can't apply that. But what's the moral of the story here that I can learn from? It's that sometimes I think that I'm the confused guy and I have to realize that I'm also the guy with clarity. And the guy who's confused has to speak to the guy with clarity, which is an internal dialogue, and not to be intimidated by my own confusion, not to identify with my own confusion, but rather to say, you know what, deep down there's a part of me that does have clarity 
and can shed light on this situation. And if I'll just believe in myself enough to do it, I can get the answer. There's, a, there's an expression, amunas chachomim, which the, the conventional translation is faith in our sages. But there's an unconventional translation as well. Amunas chachomim can mean not the faith that we have in our sages, but the faith that the chacham has in us. Amunas chachomim means the faith that the chacham has when he looks at you and knows that you're smarter than you think you are. And you think you're the confused person, you think you're the one with the questions, and he says, mm, yeah, that too, but primarily you know who you are? You have clarity and you have answers and you need to just speak to yourself. And that's really what a real chacham does. A real chacham is not fooled by our confusion. A real chacham is not taken in by the outer image that we project where, you know, I don't know, I, I'm so confused, I'm so afraid, I don't have clarity. You know what? Get over it. Get over it. You are not a fool. You are very wise. You know the answer. You know the answer better than anyone. All you need is someone who believes in you and can direct you to yourself. You're the expert. The Rebbe did this all the time, by the way, and I stole this method and got credit for it. But I kept telling him when I stole it from the Rebbe, which is when I wrote the Ami column for eight years, and everyone would always say to me, oh, it's brilliant how you turn the question into the answer. You take the person's question and you just reformulate the phrase and you put it back to them and like, boom, there's your answer. I said, yeah, I, I stole that from the Rebbe. The Rebbe used to do that. Like Jonathan Sachs, all of a shalom, says, the Lubavitcher Rebbe changed my entire life without saying or writing a single word. I wrote to him at a critical juncture in life, should I become the next chief rabbi of Great Britain? The Rebbe circled should, circled I, made arrows transposing the two words, crossed out the squiggly part of the question mark to make it a period, and sent the letter back to me. And now I read it. It said, my own letter said, I should become the next chief rabbi of Great Britain. In other words, you think you only have the question? No, you also have the answer. And that your confusion is just the, the, the veneer, the, 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 the facade which is covering your own clarity. And if you dig deep, you'll find that the answer is within you. And that's what a real chacham is. A real chacham is one who perceives more than face value. That's why we say, who's, who's wise? Someone who sees what's going to be. What does it mean, what's going to be? Potential. Potential. The chacham sees potential in things, in situations, and primarily in people. In people. So the chacham has a better opinion of you than you. But who's right? <laughs> the chacham thinks you're smart. You think you're not so smart. Who's right? You or the chacham? The chacham's right. The Chacham's right that you are smarter than you think you are. And Amol Dafmen Red Suzech. Sometimes you got to speak to yourself because you do have clarity. Now go speak to yourself. 
So now let's talk about Aaron. The truth is that Aaron wasn't successful in making peace because he was a liar. Aaron was successful in making peace because he told the truth, the deepest truth, a truth so deep that oftentimes you weren't in touch with it. You thought, I hate the guy, I'm fighting with that guy, he's my enemy. And Aaron wouldn't be intimidated by that because he was a real chokham and he would look into you and he'd say, you're, you're not fighting with him. I mean, he didn't say this, he didn't articulate it to you, he didn't need to. He just looked at you and it made you want to align yourself with your inner self, which is in harmony and peace with everyone. In other words, when we say your inner true self, we mean your neshama. So, your ego may be fighting with somebody. Your ego may be threatened and, and fearful. But your neshama is not threatened and fearful. Your neshama is at peace and, and loves everyone. You know, there's a, there's a, the, the Rambam says, Hilchus Gerushin, Laws of Divorce that there's a guy who's halachically obligated to give a divorce. And he won't do it. So they help him. They, they apply some physical pressure and they help him. Koifen, I say. They force him. They, they force him. Until he says, ani, I want, because a get has to be given with free will. So the classical question is, well, you're beating the guy up. What does it mean, ani, I want? If he wouldn't have beaten him up, he wouldn't have said, I want. So the Rambam explains it right there. And he says that um, you're not forcing him to do the right thing. We're talking about somebody who's halachically obligated to give a get. You're not forcing him to do the right thing. He wants to do the right thing. His Yetzirah is forcing him to not do the right thing. So wh wh which is the coercion? The coercion isn't getting him to say, right, Ani, I want to do what is halachically correct. Every Jew, this is what the Rambam says, that's a matter of halacha, every Jew wants to do what is halachically correct. And the fact that he's not doing it right now is only because his Yetzirah is pressuring him and bothering him and, coer and coercing him. So you have to do, you have to set him free to let him do what he really wants to do. So this is the idea that if you were fighting with another Jew. I mean, that's that's You have to That's not just one mitzvah. That's all mitzvahs, or the, the foundation of all mitzvahs. Ari knew it's impossible. There's no way that a Jew doesn't want to do that mitzvah. Okay, so there's this external, superficial aspect of him that that thinks that it's fighting with someone, but that's not the real you. The real you. You're a lover, not a fighter. And so when Aaron would go tell the guy you're fighting with that you already wanted to make up with him, he wasn't lying. He was telling the truth, not just any truth, but the deepest truth, the deepest truth about you. And that's why they mourned Aaron especially intensely. Because when they lost Aaron, not only did they lose a great man, whom they all admired, but they feared they had lost themselves. Because who will come now and remind us how great we are? Who will insist that we're better than we think we are? Who will talk us out of believing our false self-concept and prove to us 
that we are far more noble and, 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 and faithful and loving than we think we are. So they didn't feel they just lost this leader. They, they felt they had lost access to their, their true identity. If I can, this, this teaching, by the way, is from, from the Rebbe. From the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechat Tzadik V'Kodesh Luvrocha, whose yard site was yesterday. So I just want to mention that, well, I'll quote Jonathan Sachs again. Uh, he said that some leaders derive their uh, authority because of how much the people trust in them. And that Lubavitcher Rebbe derived his authority from how much he trusted in the people. We spoke about this last week, last week's Pasha Shir, about how the Rebbe deputized every single person he met and said, tag, you're it, run with it, you do it, you're the leader now. And this goes hand in hand with this idea of really seeing people's untapped greatness. I'll, I'll leave you with one last story. There was a Hillel rabbi from, uh, I think it was the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, if that's correct. And, uh, and those who are into uh, trivia can find out who that rabbi was. I'm not going to tell you, but you can find out who it was. And it was, he brought a group to the rabbi. This was back in the 60s. And a group of college kids. And one of the college kids didn't realize he was being disrespectful. And he said to the Rebbe in English, in these words, he said, what's the Rebbe good for anyway? And the, rab the rabbi was mortified. He wanted to dig a hole and jump in. But the Rebbe took it very much in stride. And the Rebbe said, well, I can only tell you about my Rebbe, meaning the Rebbe's father-in-law. You want to know what a Rebbe is good for? A Rebbe is a soul geologist. What's a soul geologist? Well, what's a geologist? Geologist is a scientist, a particular kind of scientist. You know what? A, you know what? They study the study of the Earth, and who hires geologists other than universities who hire hire them to teach geology to other people who are going to become geologists? But the real money in geology is oil. Oil is one thing, but mining in general, yeah, natural resources, hundred percent, yeah, diamonds, coal, oil, whatever it is, metals, because the mining. Companies, you don't just dig anywhere because you waste a lot of money, you waste a lot of time. You hire a geologist. The geologist tells you what to dig for and where to dig. So the Rebbe says, a geologist tells you what to dig for and where to dig. There's treasure in the earth. There's treasure. Unlimited treasure, but you've got to know what to dig for and where to dig. So too, every person is covering a treasure. Every person is hiding a treasure. You have a treasure of infinite spiritual power within you. But you have to get a soul geologist who knows what to dig for and where to dig. That is a Rebbe. So the Rebbe is the Chochom with the real Amunas Chachomim, the real Amuna that the Chochom has in us, that each one of us has a treasure inside and can bring it out so that we can actually access it. And what does it mean to access our treasure? It means that 
it will affect our day-to-day -day behavior. We all are maminim b'nei maminim. Believers, the children of believers. But that can remain abstract. Chassidus calls it bechinas makif. Makif literally means it's hovering. Our faith can sort of like hover around us. So all this power that our soul has, it's hovering. What does it mean it's hovering? It's, it's abstract. It's a nice idea. It's a nice idea. But when push comes to shove and I have to make decisions how to act, I can't rely on that faith. To bring the faith out means that I'm actually able to use that faith in my day-to-day decision-making process. So that when it comes to a choice where there's a dilemma and I have to choose what's right or what's easy, and it's not the same thing. Sometimes what's right is what's easy. Sometimes it's not. There's the right thing to do and there's the easy thing to do. And I have to pick one or the other. Having access to my treasure means that I'm actually able to draw upon my faith to have the courage to make the right behavioral decision. Mm -hmm. To choose the right action. That's what it means to have access to your treasure. Mm -hmm. So you are wonderful. You are perfect. You are infinite. That's who you are. The question is, are you able to do anything similar to that? And not always. But if you have a soul geologist who's a real chacham and can bring it out of you, then you can start to behave as great as you are. I'll tell you one last thing. I have a friend boxer, uh, Dimitri Salidas. So he one time he said that he had a trainer. Forget the trainer's name, but he said his trainer told him that when it comes to being great in, in boxing or in anything really, but he said it in context of boxing. So his trainer told him, a lot of guys have what it takes, but very few do what it takes. Now, who told him that? His trainer. <laughs> His trainer. Because that's the role of a trainer, is to get you to do as great as you already are. The trainer doesn't make you a greater person than you are. You already are great. The trainer gets you to do it. That's what Aaron was doing. He wasn't making people greater than they are. How can you improve upon perfection? Each one of us is already a perfect, pristine soul. Perfect and pure. But sometimes we don't act like it. So the trainer or the chacham or the soul geologist gets us to act like it.